Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scribbin Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Picard and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. In the legal profession, effective communication is paramount. However, our guest on today's show has mastered the art of advocacy, despite the challenges posed by a world primarily designed for those who can hear. With a keen intellect, unwavering determination, and and an unyielding commitment to justice, she has not only overcome the obstacles presented by her deafness, but has also thrived in a field where words hold tremendous power. In today's episode, we will unravel the intricacies of her remarkable journey, gaining valuable insights into the life of a deaf litigator. So without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce our guest, Melissa Zapala, who is a counsel in the litigation department of Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison LLP. She is in the Washington, D.C. office of the firm and focuses her practice on complex commercial litigation, including antitrust, class actions, and business tort disputes, as well as conducting internal investigations. Over the last 15 years, Melissa has been involved in a number of high-profile matters, including high-stakes trial teams involving major technology companies. Melissa is also committed to pro bono work and has received numerous awards, including being recognized by the National Law Journal in 2015 as one of the D.C. area's top 40 lawyers under 40. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me. So, Melissa, tell us what it was like growing up with profound hearing loss. Well, Dave, I think it was a unique experience. To give a little bit of background, I grew up in Long Island, New York, in the 80s and 90s. I was mainstreamed, which meant that I attended the neighborhood public schools. I had a wonderful family, very supportive parents, close relationships, and I did very well in school. But I was one of the few, if only, kids that I knew with a hearing loss. And so I did feel a little bit different than other people. For example, I presented differently. I wore hearing aids as a child. I still do. I have what's known as a quote-unquote deaf accent. You may notice it now. My speech sounds a little different. Someone once described it to me as, I sound like I have a perpetual cold. And so with the obvious visual difference from a hearing aid and the auditory difference, I felt like I stood out. But as a child, I think, especially as you become a teenager, all you really want to do is fit in. And so I did feel like I stood out a little bit. So for example, growing up in school, I used to sit in the front row of every class, dead center, so I could hear the teacher because, and see the teacher because I lip read, so I wanted to be close to the teacher. And the teacher would wear an FM system 
was meant that the teacher would transmit the sound directly from him or her to my hearing aids. So all of that allowed me to participate fairly in school. But because of that, I had a unique experience. And so because of that, I always felt a little bit different. Now, that's not to say I didn't have a positive experience growing up. I did. And I really credit my family and my friends for really ensuring that I had the accommodation that I needed. But it was a bit of a unique situation. And can you tell us what it was like going through law school, being a deaf law student? So my experience as a deaf law student was an interesting one. So when I was in elementary and grade school, my accommodations in school consisted of what I just described, which is I was sitting in the front row with um, the teacher wearing an FM system, and then I would just focus on lip reading. But law school and college, the classes are bigger, the classrooms are bigger, so I had a different kind of accommodation. I would have a court reporter sitting in the classroom with me providing a real-time transcript of everything that the professor said. In addition to the professor wearing a microphone, and so that enabled me to be able to read what the professor was saying, but it also made me feel a little bit like I stood out a little bit more because you couldn't miss me in the classroom. I was very obvious. There were two of us attending the classes, And sometimes classes were hard for me because sometimes there was a lot of student participation and the court reporter couldn't quite pick up what a student said somewhere else in the classroom or there was a lot of legal jargon that the professor or student may use that the court reporter didn't pick up. So that part of it was a little bit difficult. But because of that, I was very intensely focused and making sure that I did the readings, that I understood what was going on. It was as though my fear of missing what was being said in the classroom really enabled me to focus on my academics and ensure that I succeeded. So I know it would have made me anxious to be relying on somebody else to take notes for me in law school because I was a very anal law student in that, you know, I was studying all the time. I wanted to make sure I understood. And law school is so competitive. And so how did you kind of deal with that? I mean, law school is so difficult and stress-inducing. And then to have this on top of it, how did you deal with all of those emotions? By doubling down on my academics. Because you're absolutely correct. Law school is competitive. And... There are a lot of people who want to succeed. And because I did have this sort of internal feeling of, will I be able to do this? I I can't hear. It really drove me to succeed. I did have a tremendous amount of anxiety to ensuring that I was able to perform academically. But that anxiety is a double-edged sword. And that anxiety is what really drove me to spend late nights studying, really making sure I learned the material and did well academically. Well, let's turn to uh, post-graduation from law school and uh, you're a litigator now at a you know very big firm. Can you tell us about how you kind of navigate the litigation environment and communicate with judges, opposing counsel, and clients? 
I think you, at the beginning of this podcast, mentioned something called effective communication, which I think is absolutely key in the litigation world and is absolutely key to being a successful litigator. Because of my hearing loss, communication is a bit more difficult for me than it may be for others. But I think because of that difficulty, I need to focus on communication and I'm more aware of the need for effective communication than perhaps others might be. And in order to engage in effective communication, I need to do something called disclosure. Disclosure is key to effective communication. For example, whenever I'm on a phone call with opposing counsel, I need to disclose that I have a hearing loss because there are accommodations that I need in order to have a effective conversation with opposing counsel. The accommodations have changed over time. So when I first started practicing law, there was no such thing as a video conference. All phone calls, all conversations were auditory only. Phone calls are difficult for me because of my hearing loss. I do need the video screen, I do need the visual cues, or I need a transcript. So what I would do is I would have a court reporter essentially dial into every single phone call I had and provide transcription, real-time transcription of these phone calls. But in order to have this court reporter participate in these phone calls and to ensure that everyone spoke slowly or recognize that I might miss something, for example, if the court reporter missed something, I needed to disclose my hearing loss. As an aside, that disclosure was difficult for me because as a, it constantly reinforced to me that I was a little bit different than other people. But at the same time, that disclosure is what enabled effective communication. That same disclosure strategy permeates the rest of my practice. For example, whenever I do a deposition and I'm examining a witness, at the beginning of every deposition I take, I have a little bit of a speech prepared. I disclose my hearing loss. I tell the witness to tell me if he or she needs me to repeat anything that I said because you can't understand me because of my quote-unquote deaf accent. And likewise, I tell the witness that I might need him or her to repeat themselves. So that is the type of strategy that I follow to practice law. And I, I think you said that uh, the disclosure was difficult at first. Yes. And tell us, you know, why was that difficult? And did it become easier over time to make that disclosure? Yes, the disclosure was very difficult for me at first because it reminded me of the fact that I was a little bit different. And one of the things that I think growing up and even as a young adult, one of my aspirations was to be perceived as not having a hearing loss. In other words, I wanted to pretend that I wasn't deaf. But in many ways, that's ridiculous because I do have a hearing loss. And just pretending that I don't makes things doubly difficult. 
For example, if I pretend I can hear, then uh, at a party in a conversation with someone else, I won't ask the other person to repeat because I don't want that person to realize the extent of my hearing loss. So with that mindset, starting the process of law, needing to disclose, it was every time a difficult proposition for me because it gave me a sense of anxiety. It asks, I ask myself the question almost every time, is this person going to judge me and my legal abilities because of my deafness? But over time, it got easier and easier. Over time, I really sort of looked deeply at this issue and I realized what I came to terms basically with what everyone around me knows that I have a hearing loss. And I think the very fact that I'm on this podcast speaking about this hearing loss, I think goes to show the extent to which I have come to accept this as an important part of me and my identity. Absolutely. And can you tell us a little bit about your dealings in the courtroom? So there was this great article, I, I think, that you wrote for the ABA Journal, the litigation section journal, uh, where you talk about some of your experiences in court and specifically what happens when technology goes awry, does not work. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your experiences in the courtroom? Sure. You're right. Technology does not always work. It's wonderful but it's not always consistent. And one example that I I mentioned in my my article, but I think is a good example, is I was representing a party in a large multi-district litigation where there are many parties and therefore many attorneys. And in one particular hearing, the entire courtroom was full of lawyers. There were even lawyers sitting in the jury box. And I arranged in advance of the hearing for the court reporter to provide near-time assisted captioning. And as an aside, many attorneys, many hearing attorneys, asked for near-time captioning of deposition of courtroom hearings. It's just useful to be able to track the transcription of what's happening. But I asked for this because of my hearing loss. And for whatever reason, the court reporter just could not get the real time to work. I was supposed to have a tablet, a counsel table, where the court reporter was sitting in her usual spot in the well in front of the judge. But she just could not get it to work. The entire hearing was delayed. Ten minutes, maybe more. The entire courtroom was silent because everyone knew the court reporter was rushing around trying to get the transcription to work just for me. It was, at that time, difficult for me because I thought I stood out and I was inconveniencing other people. Ultimately, because the court reporter just could not get the technology to work and the judge, understandably, needed to get the hearing going, I sat next to the court reporter for a little bit of time while the hearing was going on, looking over her shoulder at the transcription until she was able to get it to work and I went back to the council table. So that's an example of where 
the technology just did not work, but it was something that I needed. But at the same time, I think it also goes to show the extent to which most people are very accommodating. The judge had no issue with my sitting next to the court reporter. I don't think anyone in the courtroom begrudged the fact that the hearing was delayed because of this. It was my own anxieties and my own insecurities that made it for me a bigger deal than it probably was for everyone else in that courtroom. That's interesting. And can you talk about uh, the ways that your experience as a deaf person has influenced your approach to advocating for your clients and also presenting uh, their cases in court? My hearing loss has emphasized to me the importance of effective communication. So it's had two impacts in two areas, both the actual act of communication, in other words, disclosing my hearing loss, ensuring that a witness can hear me, ensuring that I'm standing somewhere where I can see the witness and the witness can see me, asking someone to repeat him or herself if I can understand him or her. So that's the sort of actual act of communication. But it has also impacted the general concept of communication. I have an awareness of the need to be clear concise and direct in communicating with the court, a witness, or an adversary. And that is, I think, something I'm very aware of because of my general heightened awareness of the importance of communication. Sure. And and can you talk about, so I, I think your story about being in court and the technology going awry and people very being very accommodating in terms of you know, understanding what was happening and not getting upset by it. But I'm sure that you come across some misconceptions or biases that um, are related to your deafness in the legal profession or in the world at large. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So when I was a junior associate, I was put on a trial team and I enjoyed it. It was my first trial. It was a wonderful experience. And afterwards, the lead trial attorney said to me that he didn't know if I could do it, but he figured might as well see if I could do it. And the reason for that was a deaf litigator is uncommon. I communicate differently. There is a sort of expected way of doing things that I wasn't going to do. So could I do it? I did it. I did it well. I've done it many times since. But that is an example, I think, of not necessarily a misconception, but a misunderstanding of the ways that communication can be different. I have, at times, been confused for a paralegal. One time I was confused for the court reporter, although, quite frankly, I think that might have been because of my gender and not because of my hearing loss. Interesting. And I, and I wonder if there's anything that you wish those who are not deaf, if there's anything that you could, you would say to us in terms of how you want to be treated or things that you wish we wouldn't do. Are there any things that, that you would, you would say along those lines? That's a very broad question. <laughs> and I think I don't have any unified singular answer to that. 
I do think what I would say is something that I appreciate that most litigators do. So it's almost the direct opposite of your question. But I think it's important to point out that in every situation I've been in with opposing counsel, we are adversaries. We represent our clients zealously. But in conversation, when I've had to disclose my hearing loss, I asked the opposing counsel to appear on video and it has never been a problem. Opposing counsel has always been extremely gracious and understanding on that front. I have yet to encounter a situation where opposing counsel has ever used my hearing loss as a way to set up an uneven playing field. So far, and I'm very lucky, I I would imagine that everyone has had this experience, but opposing counsel has enabled a level playing field at which we are both able to litigate for our clients' interests. That's great. I mean, the literature, the anecdotes from the legal profession are filled with conflict between opposing counsel. Yes, in meeting confer sessions and depositions at trial. And so it's wonderful to hear that you haven't encountered a lot of that. What would you attribute that to? I'd like to say common human decency, hopefully. You know, I, I will have a heated conversation with opposing counsel, but it'll all be on video where I can lip read opposing counsel. I also think to and perhaps this is a bit too optimistic, but I'll say it anyway, is I think the accommodation that I need now or that I have for now, such as, for example, doing meeting confers over video, having transcriptions at deposition and hearing that's so commonly accepted in our everyday life. It's not unusual. And it's something that hearing people use all the time. So it's not a huge imposition to ask people to simply utilize those ways of communication that are useful for me. Interesting. So I wonder if you have any advice to give other deaf individuals who are considering a career in the law or specifically in litigation. Do it. That's my advice. Do it. I think you never know how it's going to go until you do it. I've had a lot of anxiety throughout my career, but how will I do it? Will something work? But ultimately, to use the old trite saying, when there's a will, there's a way. But unless you actively pursue something, you will never know how it will turn out. Great. Well, you know, we're coming to the end of our time together and just wanted to say thank you for being on the show. I mean, I I think anyone listening could tell that, you know, you're very authentic and transparent and this has just been a a lovely uh, conversation. Uh, What's the best place to find you if folks wanted to reach out to you with any additional questions? Folks can always reach me at my email, which is mzapala at paulweiss.com. All right. Melissa Zapala, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Before our tip segment, we're going to take a quick break. Thank you to Disco for sponsoring Litigation Radio. Disco makes the law work better for everyone with cutting-edge solutions that leverage AI, 
cloud computing and data analytics to help legal professionals accelerate e-discovery and document review. Learn more at csdisco.com. Now it's time for a quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is Assistant General Counsel in the Litigation Center of Excellence at Honeywell International Incorporated. It's great to see you again, Daryl. Hey, Dave. Great to be back here again. So I think you're going to be talking about tips for adding value and best serving publicly traded clients. Sounds like a great topic. That's correct. I appreciate it. Um, I'll just go ahead and dive in now. So I think, you know, as we get to the point where we're at the quarter and close, I think it's very important to see how you as outside counsel can really just add value for your publicly traded clients and how you can best serve them when it comes to reporting and reporting timely. Kind of was having a discussion with one of my good friends and for, and also co-host for the tips, Latasha Ellis, and we kind of came around with the quote that every client is not created equally, especially if they are publicly traded. So here are a few uh, tips that I have to offer that can help you best serve your clients and also stand out above the rest. When we talk about reporting at quarter end, it's very important to know what goes on inside of your client's internal organization as it relates to reporting structures and also timelines for uh, receiving authority to proceed with specific tasks such as, you know, settlement request or motions or any other filings that may be necessary for the court to also to be recorded for our uh, SEC. So, one of the things that I want to break down in our first area that we'll discuss is case status updates. So it's important to know that for your in-house lawyers that they have to report out to their key internal stakeholders and things that they have to report out of, you know, maybe necessarily like what dates are uh, coming up in terms of deadlines, what actions have been taken in the case, and what do you expect to happen within like the next 30, 60, and 90 days as it relates to a file. So you want to work with your in-house lawyers to know exactly what are their needs and what they are requesting from you. Most of the times, uh, in-house lawyers will have a reporting structure or a template that you can ask for in order to use so that you can see exactly what is needed of your in-house lawyers when they need to report out to their internal key stakeholders. So if you do this and if you do it well, it helps your in-house lawyers to meet deadlines with timely reporting for public filings if they are publicly traded. So it also helps to ease the process of the quarter in so that they are not having to hunt you down and figure out and wonder what exactly is going on in the matter so that they can report out, but also to know what's next in the pipeline. And so as we talk about pipelines, I think that really is the the best part to move me to my next area that we should discuss. And that's also the issue of budgeting and accruals that may be necessary within your publicly traded client and also just your, your client in general to know what is going on in the matter and what the budgets may be looking like. Because your internal clients have to report out to their finance teams to determine, you know, what does the litigation spend look like on a matter? Should we be taking an accrual or should we be setting a reserve for a matter if we look like, you know, it is probable uh, and estimable that there will be a payment made on a file? So these are things that your in-house attorneys need to know so that they can report out to the proper structure, such as their finance team. So 
at the end of months or at the end of the quarters, you may be asked from your internal lawyers or your in-house counsel, your clients to provide them with an accrual of what you expect to incur in the next 30, 60 or 90 days or maybe even the life of the matter so that they can provide that update to their finance team. So when you do that, you want to ask them what's important, what is in the pipeline and being able to timely report out on case status will help you determine what's going to happen next and what should we be accounting for uh, on a financial aspect to determine what's going on and how your internal client can best report out to their key stakeholders so that the profits and uh, losses sheet is, is in balance and it is current, you know, the most current and up to date. So when we get in there, you need to understand that there are outliers sometimes that may occur in litigation and, and your in-house counsel are aware of this. So, you know, when you're reporting out on budgets, you, you want to provide the best and most accurate but you also want to, you know, make room or space to understand that there may be an outlier that may have laid dormant for a while that heats up. And you want to be able to account for this. So having a good understanding of the files and cases that you're working for your client is the best way to do this. And having those regularly status updates or a regular cadence with your in-house counsel to be able to provide that information is the best way to do that. Because if you see that a case has laid dormant for a while, you may want to look and see, is this case going to be, you know, heat up and get active soon? If so, you want to make sure that you're providing a budget and an accrual for that case so that your internal client can best report out to their internal key stakeholders on the finance side. And lastly, I want to get into the issues of like pleading settlement authorities and, and other filings that you can assist and help your in-house counsel with at, that is a publicly traded company, because you have to be aware that when you submit pleadings or submit settlement requests to your in-house counsel, you have to do so and provide enough time. And, and the best way to do that is really to reach out to your in-house lawyers and ask, you know, what is the structure? What is your reporting structure? What is your approval structure? You know, what does that look like on your for your company so that I can know how much time I need to provide you to give you the proper leeway to request authority or to request approval to file a certain document or to request approval to file an affirmative action for your client. So sometimes you have to realize that there are key stakeholders that may be, be within the business, but you also have to realize that there may be key stakeholders that may be, you know, the board of directors for your publicly traded organization, some things that may need to run past them before you receive approval. So if you are crunched for a deadline, you can only imagine that your in-house counsel may be crunched for a deadline. And that is the worst position that you would like, that you really want to put your in-house counsel in because then they have to try to really jump through hoops and, and possibly make magic happen to get approvals. And so if you're providing the proper amount of time for your in-house lawyer to seek approvals and get approvals, then you will stand out and be a stellar outside counsel. So I implore you to ask the questions to to determine what is the reporting structure and how much time do you need for me to submit an assignment or a budget or a settlement authority in advance so that you have enough time. And sometimes that may take up to weeks or it may even take a month to get this approval. So be sure to ask your in-house lawyer, what does that timeline look like? Uh, another thing is don't rush your in-house counsel. Be 
cognizant that they are aware of the certain issues. They are aware when an issue or when a matter needs to be filed or, or when a settlement of conference may be happening or mediation. They are aware of these things. So instead of, you know, really pressing your in-house counsel, maybe you can turn it in such a way to ask questions like, you know, how can I best serve you? How can I best make this process flow, flow smoothly? How can I help possibly speed up the process? You really want to be in a position to be able to add value to your client. And last I want to say, you know, you want to allow as much time as humanly possible. So if you understand that there's a deadline with the court, make sure that you provide enough time. And if you are going to be late, please reach out to your in-house lawyer and ask for that additional time. Don't just assume that they are able to give you that additional time that you may be asking, just as we provide courtesies of asking extensions from outside other outside counsel or from the court. Please do the same for your in-house lawyers and ensure that you're getting proper extensions on deadlines that they may have set for you or may have imposed for reporting structures and being sure that you are doing so in a timely manner. And those are my tips today to provide uh, good service and add value to your publicly traded clients. Well, great tips, Daryl. Thanks so much for being on the show today. No, I appreciate you having me. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can contact me at dscriven-young at pecklaw.com and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting you in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the Women in Litigation Joint CLE Conference in San San Diego, taking place November 1st through the 3rd. Join us as we highlight women leading for success in the courtroom, in the judiciary, and in the profession. Programming will focus on trial skills, insurance litigation, products liability litigation, and securities litigation. Connect with leading litigators, judges, and in-house counsel from around the country. And to find out more and for registration information, please go to ambar.org slash litigate her. That's litigate H-E-R. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to re- leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify is super helpful as well. Finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.